morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty, Washington. Today is Wednesday, November 16, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The first trucks of aid reach Ethiopia's Tigray region since ceasefire. The delivery today signifies uh, hope to the population of Tigray. It also signifies to some of them uh, hope for survival. Former Kenyan President Kayata and East African Community Peace Envoy versus Eastern Congo. A DRC youth initiative targets internally displaced people. A Zambian opposition leader is arrested and charged with defaming President Hichilema. Africa Food Security discussed at COP27 Climate Summit. Ugandan President Museveni addresses the nation on the Ebola outbreak. I would like to reassure the international community, tourists and conference organizers, and the entire Uganda population that the government has put in place measures to control the outbreak. And the world population reaches 8 billion people. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Trucks carrying medical supplies arrived in Ethiopia's Tigray region on Tuesday, the first shipment of international aid to reach the region since Ethiopia's federal government and the Tigrayan forces agreed to a ceasefire earlier this month. Fred Hartel reports from Addis Ababa. The convoy by the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, delivered 40 tonnes of essential items, emergency medicines and surgical equipment to Mekele. Tigray's regional capital, according to an ICRC statement. Until today, no international aid had entered Tigray since late August. Restrictions on humanitarian access since the conflict erupted in November 2020 have resulted in a dire humanitarian crisis across the region, with millions in urgent need of food and medicine. The terms of the ceasefire deal struck in South Africa earlier this month commits Ethiopia's federal government to facilitating unhindered humanitarian access to Tigray and restoring its phone, internet and banking services. Jude Finwi, a spokesperson for the ICRC in Ethiopia, said more aid, including food and basic household items, will be delivered to Tigray by air and road in the coming days. The delivery today signifies uh, hope. Uh, to the population of Tigray. It also signifies to some of them uh, hope for survival because uh, there are uh, many patients in the region who could uh, have died because of lack of medicine, because of lack of uh, proper medical care, because most of the hospitals and health centers in the region uh, had run out of uh, medical supplies. Uh, we had some of the hospitals that were no longer functional, and uh, the health system in the region was entirely uh, or has been entirely under serious pressure. Last week, Ethiopia's chief negotiator in the talks, Redwan Hussein, said services were being restored to Tigray. Well, on Tuesday, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed said his government was committed to implementing the ceasefire deal. A spokesperson from the UN's World Food Programme told VOA their organisation had not yet resumed aid deliveries to Tigray, where nutritional supplies have mostly run out. Roughly one-third of children and three-quarters of lactating mothers screened for malnutrition in Tigray last month were malnourished. Fred Harter for VOA News, Alice Araba, Ethiopia. 
Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni says the country is steadily managing the spread of Ebola. He says the virus has continued to spread to different parts of the country, killing more than 50 people and blamed the spread on traditional beliefs and practices. Museveni called for calm, saying the situation is under control. Reporter Mugumi Davis Rakariji has more from Kampala. Addressing the nation on the Ebola situation on Tuesday, President Museven said the disease has continued to spread some parts of the country, though at slow pace, because of government interventions such as lockdowns and the appropriate barriers of border victims by health personnel. He declared the continued spread of the virus, which he blamed on the failure of people to abide by government interventions. As of today, there are a total of 141 confirmed cases of Ebola. 55 of these have died. Imagine 55 people dying for no good reason. That means you have added another something like 30 who have died needlessly, while 73 have, have recovered and 13 are still admitted. The deadly hemorrhagic fever outbreak was announced in September in the central districts of Mobende and Kassanda. The virus has eventually spread to other districts, including the Ugandan capital, Kampala. The current strain of the disease known as Sudanese variant has a mortality rate of up to 50%. President Museven has insisted the country will use its past experience with Ebola to control the spread. I've been told that the number of cases reduced to an average of three cases per day. This was because of intensifying control interventions, which included door-to-door sensitization of the communities by the village health teams, training of the health workers, on infection prevention and control in both public and private health facilities. Museven says simple practices such as hand washing and avoiding bodily contact with victims or suspected victims will help curtail the spread of Ebola. With a country like the rest of the world grappling with the effects of COVID-19, the president has ruled out a total lockdown and encouraged both domestic and international travelers. I would like to reassure the international community, tourists, and conference organizers and the entire Uganda population that the government has put in place measures to control the outbreak. The Ebola outbreak is localized to only six out of 146 districts of Uganda. Primary and secondary schools have been instructed close earlier than scheduled after eight children died of the Ebola disease. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarindi Kampala, Uganda. Police in Zambia have arrested opposition leader Chilifua Tayale for the second time and charged him with defamation of the president for a critical Facebook post that authorities say he made. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka. Tayali is alleged to have posted a video on Facebook in which he criticized Zambian President Hakainde Hichilema on a number of issues. Tayali's lawyer, Makebi Zulu, confirmed his arrest, saying police broke into his client's house Monday night without a warrant. Zulu says Tayali was arrested despite assuring the authorities earlier that he would report to the police station the following day. Zulu also says Tayali was beaten by police and was not allowed to seek medical attention. 
Opposition National Democratic Party leader Savoy Imboela, who is facing a similar charge, says it has now become common for the president's critics to be arrested under defamation laws. They follow us as opposition leaders without even having uh, search warrants, which is a very, very unfortunate. And this threat on Chilfia Tayali, uh, trust me, in as much as they are trying to intimidate him, none of us is intimidated because these things have to be talked about. Earlier, Zambia Police Inspector General Lemi Kajoba warned that the law will take its course against anyone bringing the president's name into disrepute. Presidential spokesperson Anthony Walia distanced Hichilema from Tayali's arrest, saying that law enforcement agencies are responsible. He accused opposition leaders of being overzealous and attention seekers. This is not about the president. This is about protecting the integrity of our laws. Everyone and anyone in this country is free to exercise their freedom of expression and their freedom of speech, but do it within the law. The 1965 defamation of the president law carries a punishment of up to three years in prison for insults against the president, and it has been used by past governments to silence critics. During his successful campaign for president last year, Hichilema promised to revoke the law. Kathy Short for VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Butt in Washington. Today is Wednesday, November 16th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and Peace Envoy for the East African Community visited the city of Goma, capital of North Kivu province, yesterday, Tuesday. Eastern Congo is the epicenter of the M23 rebel operation. Kenyatta has been visiting the DRC since Sunday in his role as Peace Envoy. The M23 operations in the DRC have been the source of heightened tensions recently between Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Journalist Al Katanti Sibiti Jaffa is in Goma. He tells me that former President Kenyatta's arrival was marred by a pandemonium among the citizens due to fear of M23 activity near the city. President of Kenya, Mr. Uhuru Kenyatta, landed in Goma today after being received by the DRC President, Mr. Felix Antoine Chisekedi in Kinshasa. Uhuru Kenyatta came in Goma today and he had to visit a NIDP camp as Goma is where many people are being based after fleeing their villages because of, because of violences made by the war between rebellion M23 and the FRDC army. Jaffa, earlier you said there was a pandemonium in Goma prior to Kenyatta's arrival. Um, what happened? Yes, there was a panic, a big panic in the city of Goma today, but this panic is not linked to the visit of Mr. Uhuru Kenyatta. This panic came from the front line. According to witnesses, some soldiers of FRDC left the front line and reached the place called Kanyaruchenya and told IDPs that M23 is just behind them and this guy shot some bullets on air. This situation made IDPs in a panic and they started to move from the camp in Kanyaruchinya in the direction of Goma. And also when people from Goma saw thousands of people coming from Kanyaruchinya to Goma, people in Goma thought that Kanyaruchinya or the nearby villages are already under rebel control. Of course, uh, the former president is uh, 
the peace mediator for the East African community. He was in the DRC. Has he met with uh, DRC President uh, Chisekedi? And uh, there was a report that he has called for everyone to stop fighting and give peace a chance. What can you tell us? Uhuru Kenyatta met the president of DRC, Mr. Felix Antoine Chisekedi in Kinshasa, and they talked about peace. Even Ian Goma, he said that they have to manage, to do everything they can so that people recover peace and stop war. And he said as the one who started uh, peace talks in Nairobi, he will do his best so that uh, they continue talking between DRC government and all negative forces in Eastern Congo, including M23. That was reporter Jaffa al speaking with us from Goma in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The humanitarian situation remains worrying in two territories north of Kivu province in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rushuru and Nyirangongo, north of the city of Goma, displaced people there are on the move and are waiting for assistance from the Congolese government and international organizations. Meanwhile, several young people in Goma have mobilized a group called Goma Atif to provide them with porridge and bread every morning. Zanem Neti Zaide has the details. In the camp of Kayembe, in the territory of Niragongo, the camp for the displaced is located within a local school. Here, 716 established households and 1,324 newsly displaced are living together with the students in a precarious situation. Without clean water and food, the displaced are exposed to disease, as David Sekora, secretary of the Kayembe camp for the displaced, points out. He says that the displaced are suffering enormously in the camp. They have no food, no drinking water, and the situation is getting worse every day. He says that when the newly displaced people arrived, there were many among them who did not know where they could put find shelter. Many of the displaced are already suffering from cholera. Artists, activists, lawyers, and bankers are among the young people that have formed an organization called Goma Active. They have been coming together every morning for more than 10 days to prepare porridge and give bread to thousands of children nursing mothers and the elderly. The objective is to compensate for the lack of assistance from humanitarian organizations and the government, which is slow to come. Depol Bakulu is one of the members of Goma Active. He says the idea is to take the first steps before the NGOs acts. He says that the process of dispersing funds in the humanitarian world takes a lot of time, and in the meantime, there are displaced people who have nothing at all to survive. So they prefer to give them food assistance 
to see if they can stay alive. The cup of porridge and the piece of bread that these children and women receive in the only daily meal for these displaced people. They are urgently asking for food aid and housing so that they do not continue to suffer. Ange Matthias has been displaced by conflicts between government forces and the M23 rebels. She says that the initiative of these young people has helped them so much. He says since they arrived here five days ago, they have not received any help from anyone. She asks the government to act quickly. Since the occupation of several villages in Ruchuru territory by the M23, the humanitarian situation has deteriorated considerably. People say they hope a solution to the security problems will be found through talks that begin on November 21 in Nairobi between the Congolese government and all active rebel groups. For VOA News, Amzanem Netizaidi in Goma in Eastern DRC. With nearly 345 million people food insecure, some climate and food experts attending the COP27 conference are urging leaders to think differently about agriculture. The Rockefeller Foundation's food team is stressing what they say are the benefits of regenerative agriculture and specifically the need for indigenous leaders to lead the conversation around it and decarbonizing food systems. Sarah Farley, vice president of the Food initiative at Rockefeller Foundation spoke to Ricky Stryak about the issue. For many institutions, particularly business, they lean into that with respect to carbon and soil health without the recognition that these constructs have deep roots in indigenous communities and have for centuries, thousands of years in fact. And so I think it's helpful to observe that really when we come at regenerative and agroecological agriculture, we're really entering a spectrum that ranges from shallow to deep. Where we're talking shallow regenerative, yes, we're talking about carbon sequestration and soil health. Somewhere in the middle, we're getting layering on biodiversity, water quality. We don't get to deep regenerative until we're looking at the sociocultural dimension, which is everything from ownership of land to the ability for the practice of agriculture to rebuild cultural co- cohesion, enable spiritual tradition. simply don't think any single stakeholder group understands the, the deep um, sort of uh, multi-dimensional approach to regenerative better than indigenous community. Are there any specific examples or groups you guys are hoping to work with um, on, the, uh, in, on the continent? So one of the groups that um, has one of these first 10 grants is a group called The Indigenous Partnership, or TIP. And TIP is housed within Bioversity. But what it is, it's an indigenous-led effort to connect indigenous people practicing their Um, traditional agroecological knowledge and food systems in different ways in different places. And those include people in Kenya, in Thailand, in India, and it's really open for anyone in the world. What the grant will do, it will support the Indigenous Partnership to invite Indigenous people from across the world to put forward 
how they're looking at the evidence of what they get out of traditional agroecological knowledge and food systems with respect to biodiversity, water. I, I kind of wanted to ask too, what, what some of the challenges might be to implementing some of these programs? There's one immediate challenge, which is how different stakeholders come at this construct, this word regenerative, is actually rather polarizing right now. Um, I think there's definitely a concern in some spaces that the word regenerative is greenwashing of orientations to more holistic agricultural food systems and knowledge systems that have been in practice for a long time with different terms. That was Sarah Farley, Vice President of the Food Initiative at Rockefeller Foundation. She was speaking to Ricky Stryak from Egypt at the COP27 conference. The United Nations marked World Population Day yesterday, Tuesday, with the global population expected to hit 8 billion people. The UN says much of the growth over the next three decades will come from eight countries, and half of them are in sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Grant Leite is the United Nations Population Fund country director in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He tells viewers Carol Van Dam that the country has an estimated annual growth of 3.2%. What do you see uh, in terms of of population trends, a number of things. First of all, there's a significantly growingly younger population. 59% of the population um, is between 0 and 90 years old. That is an extremely different dynamic to you know, what we see in, in, in countries in the north, for example. We're also seeing a migration, as in many countries, progressively away from rural areas towards urban settings. And in terms of the impact for both the authorities and and people, the issue is that the the urban infrastructure is absolutely not designed to cope with this huge influx. Um, A city like Kinshasa right now officially has over 13 million people, and many of these are are in peri-urban settings which don't have the appropriate infrastructure. Most importantly, water, sanitation, health centers and schools. So you're talking about basic necessities that are lacking. Indeed. So, so they are, they are the basic necessities do not have the, the, the capacity to, to deal with these significantly larger numbers of people that are coming into urban settings. And this trend, I mean, if we project, assuming that the current population is 98 million with an annual growth rate of 3.2%, this would reach just under 250 million by the year 2050. Do you think that kind of problem is is the same problem as what's going to affect these other sub-Saharan countries that are named in the report? Yes, very, very much. I mean, you know, Nigeria has even larger projected figures. Um, If it stays on track with the current population growth rate, Nigeria will become the third most populous country in the world. So it's all about the education system and about about fields and and, and tertiary education. So you're saying kind of the upside of it is these young people, they can be productive members of society, they're not kind of like a load on the society as old people would be and the very, very young people 
But by the same token, you have to have education and, and schools and infrastructure. Exactly. So it's on the proviso of, of, of actually managing to have the setup which functions from primary through secondary school at very least. That was Grant Lete, the United Nations Population Fund Country Director in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam from Kinshasa. And that's it for this Wednesday, November 16th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Botti in Washington, wishing that you will have a wonderful Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and our panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including leaders of the world's largest economies are gathered in Indonesia. Tensions over Russia's war on Ukraine raises questions about whether they would be able to unite on what is one of the most pressing issues globally and with Russia being a member of the G20 group. We'll discuss this and more on Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.